Andrew Meadows was the first employee to join Linden Lab in late 1999 and begin working with me on what would later become Second Life. Before that, he and I both studied undergraduate physics at UC San Diego. Andrew later went on to get uh, uh, enter the PhD program in space plasma physics and left that program to join me in 1999 uh, to work on Second Life. He's an amazing thinker, uh, engineer, and uh, co-worker uh, who has worked with me for more than 20 years now. He's still at Second Life today after a spell in the middle of about uh, a number of years working with me at High Fidelity. We had a wide-ranging conversation about the earliest days of our office in Hayes Valley in San Francisco, uh, what the earliest experiences of Second Life was like, um, what the first avatars looked like, conspiracy theories in Second Life, uh, physics, simulation theory, what we can learn from AIs, and a number of other fascinating topics. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you. Here we go. Here we are. We're comfortable. We're good. We have our uh, we have our whiskeys uh, close at hand. Cheers. Good to see you. Good to be here. So, Andrew, what I was want the first thought I had was, what do you remember about us meeting and like uh, studying together in college? What class do we meet in? That is a good question. Um, it wasn't uh, electrodynamics. It was one of the later ones. I like, thought maybe it was 100 or electrodynamics. Uh, Professor, the advanced uh, electronics, perhaps, or the um, continuum yeah. continuum mechanics. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what your experience was, but for me, I, as you know, I, I hadn't met anybody to study with, and I met you and our, what, four other friends, like, at the same time. Right. And... Uh, Chris... And Dan, uh, yeah, oh yeah, and Nick, right. And uh, for me, it was like I'd always thought I was a really smart kid, but then when I got to college, started studying physics, I realized it was a lot harder than I had thought. And um, I met you guys, and then I was like, okay, now I really need to step up my game because these guys are super smart and they're doing all the homework, and I got to study and I got, I got to impress them, you know, or they or they won't keep me. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, when you say that, I I feel like you're talking about Chris Mitchell, Phil Aris, and Dan Gilhar. <laughs> <laughs> they were the smart ones. They were the smart ones. I came in on the side. Um, I must have uh, become friends with Chris and Phil first, and yeah. they invited me into this. I, I felt like I was the last to arrive, yeah. Oh. Like I, I felt like you were all... <laughs> studying together in those in those first upper division classes and then uh yeah yeah the, it felt to me like i had to try really hard because now it was going and, and now it was going to get tough you know yeah i must have joined the circle before that because they were competitors at the lower division yeah classes already you know the the uh the the scores would go up yeah I on a board that. somewhere yeah. you could see and who check it. Yeah. who uh had done well yeah, yeah. totally I totally remember that. I mean, why did you study? Why did you study physics? Uh, when I took high school physics, I really enjoyed the class, and it was at that time I had I decided on my major in college. So I was like, 
I so came in, physics. I knew, so yeah, like high school physics. Things rolling down hills or? Yeah, uh, you know, the simple dynamics of um, projectiles in motion, force uh, equations, of course, or equilibriums, and also electrodynamics, because I was right. interested in circuitry and whatnot. Yeah, because like me, you were, a, you were an electronics person, right? You. I was interested. I didn't get as much experience as you did. Um, but, yeah, it always intrigued me. So it was a, a topic of interest. I remember that was the class where I felt like I was ahead of you guys finally because the, electronic, the electronics labs were classes where oh, yeah. I would be like, oh, okay, this is my backyard. I can do this easily. And then uh, Chris, I think, particularly was so good with the problems in physics and then because he could get them because everything was exactly correct you know like yes. the, the theory and the math and everything clocked out right and then when you got into like electronics labs you'd have like a weak battery or you'd have noise or whatever and it wouldn't work and I remember people in general would become super frustrated and for me I was like oh this is the part where I can really shine I'm not gonna have to work hard yeah um, and also there was always the uncertainty of measuring you know on the scope where the line went I remember, you know, error analysis, early, early hands-on error analysis was uh, a struggle. <laughs> Maybe that made us both embrace noise and uncertainty and craziness, which later on would come to matter so much with our work together. Did you like quantum or mechanics? or Like, what was your favorite upper division physics stuff? I liked the mechanics and electrodynamics more than quantum. Yeah. I took, you know, you take a successively higher level of quantum as you go and yeah, right even you know at third level quantum i felt like i didn't understand it so. i think i felt about the same way I mean, well we yeah. had the same teachers but it did feel a little bit like all the all the hoopla around quantum continues to kind of crack me up because it feels like just the basic classical physics is plenty difficult and interesting right for everything you don't really need quantum for much i think we'll probably come back to that that's great you know Virtual worlds are a real example of that. Although I do remember, it's funny, I jump into Second Life. I do remember like tunneling objects, you know, in Second Life. That was one of the things that was always really fun because it was like the first signs of the simulation theory or whatever, right? Was, right, yeah. I, I remember because we had all done all that physics and it was so fresh in my mind when even before, well, when you and I, when we started working on Second Life together, I remember meeting with a venture capitalist uh, Jim Breyer and telling because I also worked a little bit uh, part-time at that venture capital I don't know if you remember that at the very beginning of the company. I was still yeah. Yeah, doing you were some stuff with Axel. Yeah Yeah, I was a you had know, a uh, you had a real part-time job Yeah, yeah I had a real <laughs> on the side the one day a week thing where I'd drive down and hang out with those guys and I remember telling Jim Breyer, I think it was Jim that I had note I had realized that when you try to simulate physics and you you know you put a heavy thing on a table in second life or in any virtual world most anyone if you wait long enough you know the, the ball will like fall through the table you know one thing will come to another you know and i remember being struck by that quantumy idea that like oh well you know you go to simulate virtual worlds and you've got these quantum effects that you get in the virtual world that must be, you know, I mean, and then the, the real world has quantum effects. Right. In it. You know, you, you can push things through other things in the real world. And I do remember that being something kind of fun where I was like, maybe everything is a, is a simulated system because, and maybe you always run into these 
artifacts, right, when you run out of computing Right, exactly. Power. Artifacts and glitches within the laws suggest that it's a simulation, yeah. Or the finite nature of quantum, uh, the quantized right. values I, of, the, of the measurements. Yeah, like I always thought about it more, I guess, somewhat because of Second Life as that started to happen. I thought about how there can only be so much compute. Actually, that was a Feynman quote, right? Feynman had yeah. this great quote where he said, I refuse to believe that it can take an infinite amount of computation to figure out right what's going on in an infinitely small region of space. He's like, I hate that. It seems dumb to me. Yeah. We got to keep working on it. <laughs> so it felt like quantum was, uh, yeah, I would think of it as qu quantum suggests that there's a limit to the amount of computer. It's one way of looking at it, right? And that, okay, mm -hmm. well, you know, there's also a limit to the amount of compute in, uh, in any realistic systems that we're building for virtual worlds. Yeah. And actually, when we were first struggling with that, especially on the rendering side, I remember driving home and just looking at the fidelity of the world and realizing, <laughs> you know, contemplating how much calculation was going on and t to create the scene for me. Do you know what I used to do that with was because, you know, we built things in Second Life with those primitives and the primitives only had certain shapes. Yeah. I would find myself like going into like a cathedral or something and looking at it and being like, oh, man, that's like so many primitives. <laughs> like you'd have to use a little arc there and then a ball. And, yeah. you know, I was trying to like reduce everything to like compression, I guess. I was trying to reduce it to the minimum set of Second Life primitives that would represent it faithfully. Yeah. What do you what do you first remember? Uh, uh, what do you first remember, like building in, in Second Life? Uh, at the very beginning, you remember? I mean, we had to load terrain and we had to draw the yeah. avatar. Yeah. Right. And so the very, very first avatar was like the ball a, or a, the no, spaceship? it was a UFO. It was a spaceship. UFO. Yeah, yeah. It didn't have any orientation. That's such a great thing. Uh, it just had position. I thought I remembered then I wanted to put like a red light on one of you the... You had one. Yeah, there so, was... So that it, when it turned, oh. you could see like, you could see which way it was looking because you could see which way the red segment yeah. was pointing. That was added eventually. Yeah. 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 And then when was the flying, the flaming eyeball? Wasn't that similar? Yeah, yeah. Well, as Tell I recall, my eyeball. memory was you were contemplating what the avatar representation should be like in the virtual world. And you had a postulate that, a theory that it should either be very abstract or very human-like, very realistic and, right. you know, uh, humanoid. Um, and so we first tried the abstract case, yeah, uh, yeah. which was a, um, yeah, it was a, an eyeball that had kind of flames on the back. Like a like an old car, like a yeah. classic car yeah. or something, Chevy. <laughs> so we would uh, fly around and you could see where the eyeballs were looking. And yeah, and I think we did the big eyeball because we wanted to make it really explicit so you could have this eye of Sauron, you know, that was looking at you and you could yeah. tell like, oh, that person can see me right now in, in, in the world. But yeah, I also remember wanting there to be no more to the avatar, I guess in sort of a Steve Jobsian way. I wanted there to be nothing more than the things we could control so that you weren't right. confused by having a right foot or something when you couldn't move your right foot and move the avatar. So like I had this idea I remember of it should be like a flaming eyeball. I, mean, I don't know if you remember seeing this. And it should have this like grease gun hand like it would have this yeah. little hand hanging from like a grease gun kind of thing like in a, a car shop and then you'd when you went to manipulate things you know with the mouse it would like move yeah, the hand yeah, around right. to show you. Yeah. And we ended up settling on the power beam that went 
to the object, right? Like your hand would reach out and yeah. it would point at the thing and, you know, convey it to change or whatever. Tractor beam. Yeah, the tractor beam. So let's go back, though. 1999, you gave up a very lucrative uh, rocket launching space physics career <laughs> to come down to Hayes Valley, San yes. Francisco. So what? well, one... What was that decision like? What do you remember about that? I'm not sure I would call it lucrative. <laughs> it was promising, perhaps. What, what we had data. Uh, so, yeah, I was uh, studying plasma physics. And when you're studying plasma physics, typically you're either studying laboratory plasma or space plasma. And so I was on the space plasma side, so magnetosphere, ionosphere, uh, effects and so you were yeah. shooting rockets right to yeah look, measure those things like through the atmosphere yeah so I was helping build instruments on sounding rockets that would go up suborbital maybe 300 kilometers or so and um, they would pass through the uh, magnetosphere and you have uh, waves and particles going up and down these magnetic field lines so we would measure those uh, but it was actually in that experience, it was a lot of fun, uh, but I learned that what I really liked to do was the engineering part and not the science part. Right. So that is I why. I do feel like I remember you saying that, yeah. yeah, that you wanted to build stuff. Yeah, that's why I left. You know, reading the science papers was less interesting than building the instrument or writing the analysis code to look at the data. What can you remember me saying about what I wanted to do like what what's your earliest memories of what the job was when you came down I think in November of 99 or whatever yeah um, well I had uh, the advice that I had picked up from people that talked about how they got jobs in industry was uh, to spread the word tell everyone that you're looking for a job so I started doing that and I sent you an email saying hey I think I'm going to join the workforce if you know of any jobs down there let me know and uh, you said, yeah, I'm starting something. You should come down. I'm like, all right. So I scheduled a flight, and I arranged some other interviews for within a week. Um, and I didn't know what you were working on, and I, I came down. But, but I was, my idea for a career was to work in instrumentation, so right. building gadgets, hooking them up to the computer to measure the data, um, yeah, just running like the, the front part of the experiment and, and in, in particular working on someone else's project. I didn't want to invent the project, but if someone had a project that needed a gadget built, I would try to do that. But do you remember, was I more talking at that time about building the virtual world or more about building the, the, the interface, the rig that we'll get to and talk about? It was all about building the, the rig. <laughs> so I came down, you had the rig, there was no mention about virtual world at that point. Uh, and so it was just, you know, yeah. we have the circuit measuring this thing, yeah. how to make it work. And um, I went through uh, uh, an interview. I think the only thing I remember about it was the circuit and the puzzle question. What was the puzzle the, question? The puzzle question was uh, you have a circular table and you're oh, playing a game where you can lay down a penny or a coin. That's so and, great. We and, gotta, yeah. you know, can you win this game? Is it determined? So was it, you have a circular table, and you've each got a bag of pennies, an infinite number of pennies, 
and you got to lay a penny down flat, not on its edge and not laying on another penny. And you can stick it anywhere on the table. Yeah. And then you can, and then you alternate turns. And the question was, is there a way to win this game? And, and the so, winner is, is the is the loser is the one who cannot actually put a penny on the table. Right. Cannot right. Fit a right, penny. Right. That was um, such a great question. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great question, but I got it wrong. Because ah. uh, I, I didn't, you, you asked me, uh, you know, is there a way to win the game, whether you go first or last? And okay. I said, I, I actually said, yes, there is. And then I, I gave the wrong answer uh, for the strategy. Do you remember what you said? Was it not going the middle? Uh, yeah, I said, um, wherever they put a penny, you put one um, mirror image. Oh, then that's right. But you just didn't say you got to go in the middle first, right? right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I always like that question, although I think as I've gotten older and more experienced, I think, you know, all those questions are a little bit of hooey, you know, like it's more important to figure out if people are going to be able to work with the other people there, than, you know, more so than give them hard problems. But I did think that was a fun, hard problem. Yeah, yeah. I don't ask puzzler questions anymore either. No? No. I, what do you ask now? I have a few standard C++ questions. Uh, that I use to figure out how well they know C++. And then the rest of it is a conversation just to see how they engage. Do you ask people about like networking anymore or what, what sort no. of C++? My C++ questions are simple. Um, I can tell like you. Sort a list or yeah, something? Yeah, they're three questions. They are... Uh, I'm what? outing, we're outing you here now. You're not <laughs> yeah. going to interview anybody yeah. anymore. Uh, what is a virtual function? What is a pure virtual function? And why on earth would you ever use a pure virtual function? Those are the three questions. Oh my gosh, this is not a job that I'll get. <laughs> Based Touché. on how they answer it, you can tell whether they're just a student, you know, they've learned the concept but haven't actually used it, yeah. or whether they're very experienced and also just sort of how well they work with um, APIs. What do you feel about where people went to school? Do you read that or like do you? Do you think it matters? Uh, no, I don't pay attention. Yeah. I might notice it, you know, as a thing that they actually went to school, but yeah, um, yeah I, don't, I don't pay attention. So what do you remember about Hayes Valley in that first office? That was, that was really something. What do, you, what, what do you remember most when you think back to the neighborhood and the where we got lunch or, you know, the experience of Hayes Valley, 1999 to 2000. It was an interesting time because it was the, you know, the, the dot-com boom of the late 90s was and still it. in force at that point. So this is late 99, yeah, November right. or October. Right. Um, and there was a frenzy in the neighborhood. You know, you just saw it, all the people that you talked to, the traffic, on the roads, the fact that you never saw a for rent sign anywhere in the city. Yeah, um, the traffic. Yeah. yeah, the traffic on 101 forever is the metric of Silicon Valley's prosperity. Yeah. And the ads that we saw on TV about all the hyped, you know, internet possibilities. Um, and so huh. it was an interesting time. And so I came down works. and there was this fever going on in San Francisco and the Silicon Valley. And... Um, so there was, it was, uh, when I came into your office, I, the main thing I remember is I still f smelled fresh paint. Ah. You guys had just painted the paint. Painted the office. And there are all these guys running around. There are some guys upstairs. 
as I, I recall. I have to say that the story, at least a few months before, was that my my niece uh, was uh, helping out at that time. She was yeah. a teenager. You remember uh, her. And uh, she looked up in the paper, and I remember her saying to me, Uncle Philip, um, what is a shell condition warehouse? And I have to say, I didn't know what that was either, but it was like 50 cents a square foot for that whole, you know, for that whole building there, uh, we were, you know, we were in that three-story little warehouse, basically. But I didn't know what shell condition meant, and I and I didn't know what a shell condition warehouse meant. And of course, you and I found out what it meant, which was yeah. a bathroom that was not serviceable, and you know, the ability to lock oneself permanently <laughs> into the cage between the front door and the outer. That I mean, that was the one that really made me laugh. Right? Yeah. Like if you had pulled the door closed behind yourself, you could potentially have locked yourself into the space between that door and the the outer gate metal gate and you would have been stuck in there like a zoo uh, animal for the remainder of the mm-hmm. night or whatever back in those days we didn't have as many uh, telephones to get help with but um, I do think I remember that what else yeah. what do you remember um, well uh, yeah you uh, there was it wasn't well furnished I mean it was just <laughs> like a couple tables and a big empty space and yeah. you had um, but we had the conveyor belt the conveyor belt was there from the first floor to the second. <laughs> yeah, you could turn that on and ride it. You could yep. ride it up, but not down. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you you had uh, construction lights um, oh, shining yeah, in the corners. Yeah, just you know. I love those. Those lights that you would shine up in the corners. Yeah, like so paint construction. They're like those yeah, yellow yeah. yellow construction Looked lights. Nice industrial. I liked having them in the corners as the. Yeah, that's just great. I didn't remember that. And then it was, uh, we would both ride our motorcycles in early in right. the morning. We're both earlier people, so we'd usually be there. I remember coming early. in at 5.30 in the morning, and you were already there. Really? At <laughs> yeah. 5.30? Yeah. Oh, my God. One day. <laughs> you yeah, maybe once. Uh, yeah, th- um, and uh, one of the great things about that time was, this is my first real job yeah. other than grad school. And, um, I mean, I had some side jobs, but it was my first career job. And I would wake up in the morning, and I would hop, pop out of bed, and I'd be like, I get to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> run off to the city. Yeah. So the first thing we built was the rig, which has been uh, not much discussed, although there's a little bit about it online. And then as, as you know, we're, we're, we've been working on it a little bit uh, in a project here at, this, at our, our lab. But what was, what was the rig? <laughs> How would you uh, describe it? The rig was, I mean, at, at its simplest, it was a simple transducer that measured force. Um, and then with feedback, with visual feedback on what that force was doing on the screen, uh, you would get yeah. a, a visceral sensation of the weight or, yeah. or the mass of things. Um, yeah. So at, at its simplest, it was that. It, and we had most... like a beam, right, that you'd hold on to and yeah. play pong with. And the beam had strain gauges on it, and you couldn't move your hand, but of course you'd see this little paddle moving around, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so you're pushing and pulling on this rod that doesn't move, and yet you, you by pushing harder or less hard, you could move something faster or less. Yeah. Uh, but at its most complex, it was just a... Um, a measurement it was going to be the plan was to make a measurement of your intent of motion right uh, of the whole body 
And what do you remember? Like, how, what, what's the coolest thing that we got done with that, you know, before we shelved it and started working on Second Life, the software, basically? Uh, well, we had, uh, we had it hooked up to your head, and so you could kind of look around in the world just by, by trying to turn your head, yeah. and then the world would swing across your vision. Uh, we also had uh, both feet. You could strap both feet in, and we could measure the force on your feet, and you could kind of move <laughs> your legs in an attempt to walk. And the point of this, dear listener, um, it, it was that the idea was that we would immobilize you uh, and, and, like, for example, keep your head from moving and then feel how hard you were trying to turn your head and turn the display that you were seeing, so to speak, turn where you were looking in the world. And our hope was that we could build a VR headset, if you will, without having to have light things attached to your body. And so uh, it was this almost opposite idea that instead of letting you move and tracking how you were moving, we would not let you move. Right. And we would track how you were trying to move. And as you know, I mean, it's still a, I think still an interesting research area, although it's a more expensive way to do VR because yeah. you're, you know, you're building a big contraption, but it could also simulate things like holding a sword because, you, you know, you had to generate exactly the right forces or holding a bowling ball. I remember we'd have like a, you know, you hold something heavy in your hand and if you didn't push up against the the thing that you were kind of bolted into, you, you, the thing, you know, your, your hands would fall. And so you actually felt inertial Your, your mass. visual hands would fall. Yeah. yeah. So you'd have to use the visual feedback to hold the ball correctly. Yeah. Uh, well, in its in the uh, the full um, you know the the full body rig idea, it is interesting, but it's it's really a complex problem. <laughs> it turns into a, a do you think difficult ever, mechanical problem. Do you think it can ever be solved? Like I wonder, do you think if we put more time into it, we could figure out how to th throw a throw a, a football or something um, without moving your real arm? But you know, like we were kind of working toward. It would be hard. There, um, I think you'd have to sort of step up the the uh, the experimental lab and the fabrication of the device. You know, there's a nerdy thing about it that I reflect back on because I know I think at the time we talked about this, which was that if you remember, you know, when we would restrict, you know, say your arm from moving, we'd have all these degrees of freedom that we restricted, you know, mm -hmm. like, we, you know, your shoulder, what your shoulder's got like five degrees of freedom, and then your wrist has got, you know, more, you know. Uh, and we would, the, the problem we had, if I remember, was that we'd be sensing all these mechanical channels, which were basically strains that you were putting on the metal that you were kind of strapped to. But then we had to infer from that, you know, kind of which muscle was pushing on which bone as a means of moving, you know, your real, your sorry, your avatar's arm the way you, you were trying to move your own arm, right, with these forces. Right. And if you didn't have the math right, you know, you'd move one way and your virtual arm would move the other way. And I remember that we had all this, like, physics discussion about, you know, could we do formulas that would take out all the side you know all the coupling couple, yeah. the coupling right between exactly. channels nowadays we would just do that with ai right yeah with enough data and a, and a fancy enough rig you could do it yeah it seems like that's like i mean that's one thing I, I agree with you i think there are other like big problems with making something like the rig actually work and making it affordable making it you know usable but 
it does seem like AI now, it seems like a perfect example of machine learning. You know, you just sit there and go, I'm trying to lift my hand, I'm trying to lift my hand, I'm trying to lift my hand, and then it'd be like, okay, I got that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but remember, we had it such that if you shifted your weight, it would, right. you'd, you'd get measurements. So in that sense, it was coupled to where your torso was. Right, so like even if you hard. moved your butt, you know, it, it could think you were moving your forearm, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So many problems like that in VR. It's amazing to think that, what, we've gone 20-some, you know, about 24 years after we were doing that work, and things are still harder than we would have thought, you know? Obviously, we've worked together yeah. uh, almost the whole time since then, so uh, it's fascinating stuff. It's great. One of the things I remember about the early days is that um, I came down to work on the rig or on the instrumentation problem, and I was working on it for a week before I found out about the virtual world aspect. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we went to lunch one day, and over lunch you were saying, oh, yeah, once we get this yeah. rig working, <laughs> I want to make a virtual world that we can use it in, and then it'll be a one-two punch. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you remember? Do you remember what I was saying about that virtual world? Uh, no, it was just going to be a space where you could actually yeah. use the instrumentation, the, 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 the machinery yeah. or the input mechanism. And uh, I was excited. That sounded like a lot of fun. I, I always have these memories. It's kind of funny because I know that you've always been very thoughtful. Maybe we'll get to that about separating kind of, you know, physics from religion or anything like that. And uh, I was always, always it was interesting how we were like having these conversations or these kind of recapitulations of the book of Genesis, right? Like simulating water and ripples on the water first and actually connecting, I think, to our friend Chris's computer down in uh, Los Angeles where I think he set up like the first time we actually ran a simulator that was not in the office was right. to, to make waves go back and forth between uh, two, you know, water areas, basically. Mm -hmm. And we had those waves that worked yeah. at the beginning. Yeah, we exchanged boundary conditions yeah. and propagated the, the drum equation. Yeah. I remember that we would, we would set the water, you know, the water always had a little bit of wiggling, you know, a little bit of noise in it, of course, and it seemed to never go away, which we found fascinating. And then you'd sometimes go home and you'd come back in the morning and maybe it was totally calm or maybe it had become... Yeah, gone unstable. Unstable, <laughs> and it was like, you know, huge, huge uh, waves. Yeah, yeah. The problems of simulations in finite time. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like we had all these weird, like, very beginnings of a virtual world moments, you know, where we added the sun. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Because we wanted, I, we wanted to see reflections on the water because specular lighting was just so cool, especially yeah. back then, you know, 2000. So um, we were using OpenGL for everything, right? That was the... Yep, yep. And there was a few years where every week or every month there was something new added and that was always a lot of fun oh added like two, yeah just add new like features two, added yeah. yeah so things were moving really fast so we started working oh, the other thing i always remember is i always called it like the garden i always talked about like yeah. i want this huge garden you know this huge primeval garden or garden of eden or whatever that like this garden but at the scale of a planet and you could just wander around the one thing i can remember is saying like well Realistically, maybe nobody would like to pay for that. <laughs> like, we had to figure out, you know, how to build a startup. But I remember just like being enticed, and I still am, by this idea of like a really big, 
garden that had complexity, you know, that had some kind of right. physics and stuff evolving in it or whatever. Yeah, AI life, you would yeah. come back a month later and it would be different. different. Things had grown, maybe land had eroded. Yeah, yeah natural environment uh, with uh, sort of dynamic content. We got to come back to that later because I think that question of like, how do you do, yeah, like, how do we build physics that makes an interesting world? Maybe we'll save that for the end. There's so many good different things to talk about. But, like, what are your earliest memories of, like, Linden World, which was our first uh, pre-beta uh, version of it? And, of course, I remember James made that video, Welcome to Linden World, which yeah. is on YouTube that, you know, you can go and see. That was made years after yeah, years after, yeah. but it was a pretty good. He was going through the feature set. Oh, it was of fantastic. The the yeah. the grenades and the water. Mm -hmm. It still had right. Yeah, that still had Ripley simulated water. Yeah. I think Linden yeah. World. We hadn't turned that off yet, and the trees would blow with the wind. All those, uh, so much of that simulated stuff we had to take out as we tried to get yeah. to something that would run on computers of two thousand and three. Yeah, what I remember was. Um, that was the original idea was a garden or some just a physical world that you could be in that was digital. Uh, but we were, you know, struggling to figure out what, what, what is the uh, minimal viable feature set yeah. that we could launch with. Yeah. And so, and we were constantly asking that question, you know, every week, every day. And so we were, uh, and by then we had more people, and so it was sort of, um, you know, everyone was contributing as, as to what that minimal set is. And what do you think, like, when did the minimal set emerge? Or <laughs> yeah. What uh, with that? Well, there was a big transition on our direction was uh, that, that day that you had an investor meeting a right. board meeting it yeah, was board meeting, um, I think. and yeah. so we were going to do a big demo for the board and the plan for the demo was as i recall the board was you and the board were going to meet upstairs and you were going to show them the world right and then you were going to leave the uh, projector on or the screen on yeah and the six or seven developers down below would run around and build stuff so at that point you could plop down a prim stretch it and apply a texture yeah I don't think you could link them together. No? Uh, I'm not sure. Was there physics? Could they fall? I can't remember. No, just, uh, just the avatar was moving around, as I recall. Yeah. But um, so, so we did that. You did your presentation. Then there was that moment where we were, all, we were running around just building stuff. And it was a lot of fun at that time because I had never, you know, it's, the tools were new. Being able to just put down whatever texture you wanted so you know I could upload my own textures and so we went around and built a little town I remember I built like a gazebo and some steps and uh, and we were running around trying to build stuff as fast as possible and um, what happened was people would build something cool and then someone else would come along and add uh, decorations to it or modify it slightly or uh, make some sort of riff on the content. Yeah. Well, those, uh, th what I remember was the, the snowman and the, the great snowman yeah. and the tiny worshiping snowman. Right. Someone had Snow made a people. snowman <laughs> and then someone had come by later, someone else, and had built a bunch of little snowmen that were bowing <laughs> to the giant snowman 
God. Uh, That's the one that I definitely do still remember, like yeah. looking at that on the screen, right? And then we all had this moment where we were like, oh, this idea of building collaboratively or whimsically, right? Like the fact that the system minimally enabled that, we were all like, yeah, okay, that'll be cool. Yeah, it was. <laughs> that'll be something to do. So the idea of just give people a place to build cool stuff rather than. Uh, work hard on say making uh, birds and plants grow yeah. dynamically um, or or eroding the terrain and having weather um, we still wanted it to be physical but yeah. user generated content was uh, a, there was a big swivel at that point there's always this tension and I think there still is right about like the idea of being part of a world whose rules are inviolable and that there's like some charm to that you know like to figure out how to you know knock over the big rock you got to get a big you know lever arm or something to do it right versus the idea of your world your imagination our our launch tagline for second life that was more this idea that you were in complete control you were a god and you could do anything you wanted mm -hmm. i think that's still this uh unresolved thing like virtual worlds of today even still veer more like Second Life did at the start in the, you can do whatever you want. There's a button for everything. You know, we'll give you a knob for everything. And I think there's something that we never got to, or that I never got to, that I wanted still, like you said about like, there really are laws of physics and you can't break them. And part of the fun is that, that is that. I wonder how that I wonder how that'll still shape out, you know? Yeah, I, um, well, you know, when we were a startup, we were, we were trying to balance the, um, you know, the, the burn rate and the delivery of the, something that people would use. So there's this yeah. practical side, but I still am fascinated by the, the ideal virtual world, you know, that's, that's far more interactive or at least, you know, is based on very small, simple rules, um, but otherwise, you know, completely open. Yeah, I mean, that one's such a fun one, right? Like small, simple rules. You know, I love automata and simulation and, uh, you know, finite element systems and all these types of systems. And uh, I think, like, one of the problems that I know I thought about early on with Second Life was that I always now I always call it the trillion trillion problem, right? Which is like, um, if you have laws of physics that animate little particles or whatever in, in some interesting virtual world, like Prims in Second Life, then the question is, well, how many of those does it take to build the first interesting emergent thing, right? And in mm -hmm. the real world, right, it's atoms. And then the next interesting thing, so in some sense, is the cell, right? Is the cell, single living cell that can reproduce itself, right? And the answer is there's like a trillion, unfortunately, there's like a trillion atoms in a cell. There's just an enormous number, you know, that's what, 10,000 cubed, right? So it's yeah. just this huge number. And, uh, and then there are, there are a trillion, more or less, cells in a person, so, so to go, so if you build a virtual world and you have some physics and it works, right? The problem is you've got this trillion, trillion, you know, 10 to the 24th of the smallest units might be needed to make something like us, right? Right. And I, I, th I think that there's still this like intellectual problem. I don't know if it's a good business problem, right? But an intellectual problem of how 
is there any way to build the small parts so that you don't need a trillion of them to make the next interesting emergent scale like up? Yeah, I don't know if that's possible. Optimistically, I think it is, but I don't know what it looks like. As a physics person, right? Like, what are the sort of shortcuts, right? Like, yeah, if you're optimistic, like, how come? Like, how could we find a way? Well, um, you know that complex behavior can fall out of just a few simple rules, right? right. So you could just specify. Game of life, right? Yeah, yeah, you could specify a, you know, a small but not infinitesimally small minimal size. Maybe it's only a millimeter squared or maybe only a centimeter squared. Right. Um, and then you just need, a f I, optimistically, I don't know what the rules are, but you need a few <laughs> simple rules on how these things interact yeah. and, and bind together. Have you followed any of the artificial life playgrounds? that pe People have played with some now with balls yeah. and springs, and our own uh, Jeffrey Ventrello went on and work, has, has done some really wonderful work in that where he's got things with balls and springs and forces and stuff that create really interesting little creatures and stuff. Yeah, I haven't um, dug in too deep. Um, the last time we played with it was actually at High Fidelity. Remember, we mm. there was a period where we were looking around at all the yeah, interesting... Yeah, right, the, the Atomic Garden or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Trying to read. That's right. We, I never get away. I never. I can't let this matter rest. Uh, I'm always got to work on it. Not high fidelity, right? <laughs> we worked on it also. Our second, our second attempt at all this. So, you know, one thing I remember was the first avatars, and we had that contest, and you won. You were, I should say, Leviathan. Um, what do you remember the, about the contest that contest? The contest was to just see who could make the best avatar. This is right after we got all the, um, you know, the, the adjusters that Richard did. So That's all the called. different sliders for the body. But, but, ben, but we also had attachments. Yes, Because right. your winning entry used attachments. But, right. yeah, if, I think we had a t uh, that you could attach primitives to the avatar itself, and then you had all the sliders on the avatar, and you... Well, tell, it was one day, right? We yeah, um, you could attach, you put attachments on, but you couldn't just drag them wherever. You had to specify the position and the rotation. Like manually? Like yeah, you had something. to manually type them in. And oh. so so what I did so was... It was a mathematician's game to, to be won. <laughs> <laughs> I just spent hours into the night, you know, carefully adjusting these uh, positions by trial and error to get the attachment to where I wanted them. And so what did you make? Tell us I, what you I, made. Well, I didn't want to make a, a pretty avatar, so I made a, um, you know, I made a, a guy that looked kind of rough, you know, like a kind of oh, like uh, a Viking, Viking warrior. Warrior, <laughs> yeah. right? And I think I put armor on him and gave him a sword. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there were other very creative entries. Like oh. someone made like a Kirby avatar avatar i know? do i do feel like i remember that yeah and that one and, was neat and of course that was the history of my avatar which was i always retell this story that we were doing that contest and i knew that i wasn't going to win and so i was like well at least i should do some dumb thing that will make everybody laugh and then i used photoshop and i'm at that time as i remember i didn't even really know how to use photoshop but so i was like okay i'm going to load up a pair of chaps of like or black leather pants black leather pants i think in mm -hmm. photoshop 
and then I'm going to figure out how to use like the opacity brush or whatever and I'm going to paint away the crotch and the ass of these pants and leave myself with like this naked mannequin underneath and then and then leather pants and I was like well that's kind of cool and then I built a whole avatar <laughs> around that which was Philip Linden basically mm-hmm. spiky hair and the yeah. and the handlebar mustache and red like I had yellow eyes the very first one and the hair was like kind of reddish whatever and um later later I put on a tattoo I don't I don't think we had tattoos remember how you were the avatar's body was mirrored on both sides in the earliest thing so you couldn't do a tattoo that was just on one arm because it would show up on both oh. arms. oh <laughs> I remember that and then at some yeah. point we you know fixed that by like adding another texture for the other side or whatever but that's the kind of optimization you'd make on a game initially, you know? Yeah. One arm's the same as the other, just flipped. I bet people don't even understand, like it was so long ago then that it was so amazing that we could make such interesting things, you know, objects and avatars and stuff, right? Because a lot of our challenge was like the physics and the compression of how to represent all this stuff with very little information because of course the internet was much, much lower at that time. We were. I think I wrote on our original design document like 100 or 200 kilobits per second. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like that should be enough for anyone. You know, that'll be a, that'll be amazing. <laughs> so, so you won that contest. Now, Leviathan. You also had the name Leviathan. What was the what was the history of that name? Uh, Leviathan is my middle name, uh, chosen middle name. Mm-hmm. So, got it. Originally, I. Uh, had a different name and then we uh when i got married we my wife and i decided to pick a rather than right. she take my name or i take her name or do a hyphenated thing we decided to uh pick a third arbitrary name um and turns out that that's actually kind of hard to to uh to pick yeah, I'm, we, we literally went through the phone book. We had phone books back in those days. <laughs> so we'd go through the phone book, That's look for right, names. children. And it was a yellow, large yeah. yellow book or a white book. A white, it used white to be book for the phone to, to call, look up people's numbers. <laughs> you had a phone book. You could look them up. Um, so to pick a last name, you're kind of joining. In some cases, you're joining in an ethnic group that you don't belong in. Uh-huh. Uh, there were cool names but they had belonged to somebody kind of felt like they belonged to somebody yeah. else yeah um and so uh, i remember one of the names i really liked as a last name was diamante <laughs> that was <laughs> italian diamante. yeah and, yeah you know like i'm not italian but i but you'd I like to be, be a diamante <laughs> yeah so uh so this is involved in the name <laughs> leviathan because i had decided leviathan would be a great last name i could be right Dr. Leviathan, because at the time I was trying to get my right PhD. out of Marvel. Yeah, yeah, Dr. yeah Leviathan. It's like a James Bond villain name or something. And then that didn't work with no, no. your wife. <laughs> yeah, she she nixed that. So, but I was so enamored with the idea of Leviathan as a name, I said, okay, I'll pick Leviathan as a middle name. Uh huh. So Leviathan is my middle name, and uh, yeah, I had a. Um, at the time of the contest, right, I had a character whose last name was Leviathan. Remember, we in Second Life, you have the last names. Well, that's what I was just going to say, right? Yeah. Now you're like, could your own, did your own choice, this process of choosing your own name, right? It preceded yes. our 
design for last names in Second Life. So yes. that's like, think about how cool. I've never even thought about how cool that is. That you also chose a new bespoke chosen name. Yeah. And and so I guess that's like an interesting segue into like, yeah, one of the early things about Second Life was we needed people to have names. What I remember was I wanted people to be able to have their first names because like that's the thing that you're, I mean, not everybody, but that's the thing that a lot of people are very comfortable with. But I kind of felt like we shouldn't really have to have your, well, one, you should be able to be pseudonymous. And two, it'd be kind of cool to be able to pick your own last name, right? Because you could stay with your first name, and then you could pick your last name. And so then we did that thing where the Dunbar number, you know, in the beginning, we would only, right. we would pick last names and only use them 150 times. And then we would retire them. Yeah, right. I think it was around 500 people we would retire them. But then we have to we had to keep keep coming up with new last names and people would use up the last names and then leave and there'd end up only being, you know, still, four or yeah. five people that stuck around with the original last name. I remember that when Second Life started to have like thousands of people a day signing up, we would all be like at lunchtime like trying there was like a spreadsheet or something yeah. where we would all try to come up with as many new last names as we as we could yeah we'd go from there yeah and it was a, a weekly thing yeah come up with 20 last names for the next wave if you had it you know other virtual worlds nobody ever used a system like that like i wonder why it just it does seem i don't know it still seems like a good idea and it seems like something that i mean maybe as virtual worlds grow people will kind of have to come up with or try uh well we Second Life moved away from that, right? Um, and so we feedback from the community was that people didn't want to have last names. Yeah, they wanted and to have so, one one name as one. Yeah, strength. just they just wanted to have their username, and the last names were. Although I think there are some people in Second Life who still really like yeah. the last name thing, uh, myself included. Well, it, there was a period, as I understand it, there was a period where we didn't let you have a last name uh, and so there was a it became a an indicator for people who were old bees versus newbies right and so it was sort of like the star-bellied sneeches thing or something like the haves and the have-nots and so I think they brought that back <laughs> so that you can have last names in Second Life again that's what I was about to say was if I, if I recall of course somebody's gonna correct us or inform us on here uh, yeah, you can. You, the, the, we did bring it back in some in some sense, but but the other thing that I remember that was so cool about that right was that that thing where there's so many things we've all learned about community and about how behavioral dynamics work. And as I've said many times, like you, I w well, I was interested in physics in the beginning, and I kind of wasn't really all that interested in avatars. We talked about the giant eyeball and stuff, uh, but then I got more and more interested in them as I saw the effects that, you know, different choices that we made had on people and that, you know, there were many ways to have very positive effects on people. And that was a great thing. Yeah, the ability to um, express yourself with your avatar. But that idea of like choosing your own family, basically, that you you'd pick a last name and it was this chosen family or chosen community. And then when you'd run into somebody in Second Life that shared your last name, you'd feel this bond to them, right. even though I suppose they were, well, they were someone who minimally had no more in common with you than that they liked that name and that, you know, both yours and theirs was available. Right. Yeah. Um, 
so uh, we would well we had a lot of things like that where we were trying to um, we had restrictions or limits like that where we were trying to um, encourage people to interact and form friendships in the world yeah um, there was the last names where we thought there would be some kinship but also um, remember we were worried about there being a sort of a, a desert where people couldn't find each other so we we wouldn't let them fly very high we tried to keep them down at the surface we wouldn't let them build yeah arbitrarily high uh, and also um, you may rem- remember we we didn't let them teleport wherever they wanted to go. Exactly. Right? You had to you had to actually travel through the world to get to places in the and they, our thinking at the time was, as I recall, that it would encourage it would uh, force people to in when walking they might in, bump into people yeah. and have more chance interactions. One of the books that was really I remember that really affected me in the design of Second Life around those days was Jane Jacobs book which was called The Death and Life of American Cities and she's this very famous probably the most famous urban planner who yeah like you said she basically said all the the interesting stuff in life happens when you go from one place to another inconveniently Mm -hmm. Uh, and all the interesting things are in that that liminal that transitional space between adventures and yeah like you said we wanted to yeah, we knew that there'd be this space problem. You know, you know what it makes me think of. You remember um, what was it? Uh, Active Worlds, right? Mm-hmm. And we all played a lot and looked at Active Worlds when we were building Second Life. Or we, we, we've, we've, I, I remember like playing chess with Corey and just playing around with it. And the problem was that it would be, it could be very empty, like you were saying, because you could, you could just spread out infinitely quickly, and uh, everybody had this ambition to build more than. They really needed to, and so you ended up with this very, very large, vacuous space. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like you said, we 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 confined people to near the ground, and initially we made them walk everywhere. And then we had telehubs, right? Right. So what were telehubs? That's great. Telehubs were these um, spots in the world where you could you could teleport uh, close to those, and then you could walk. Uh, to wherever you were going. So it was uh, sort of like bus stop or something. And one of the ideas we had, as I recall, was we thought that the land around the telehub would be more valuable right. with, with lower value. So it, it would create a, That's what I was about to say. Uh, a differentiation between sort of place. And then what the do you world. remember happening? Uh, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> what I remember about telehubs was that the land was more valuable, but that people used it in a kind of a Times Square or minority report sort of way to put advertisements for things, uh, billboards all around <laughs> that for, their, for their stuff or their stores or whatever. And so when you got to a telehub, you sort of had to snake your way through all of these advertisements <laughs> and stuff to go to your friend's house where you were going. Yeah. And so... Yeah, so after a while, we just allowed you to double-click on the map and teleport. And, of course, the world was getting bigger, too. Mm-hmm. And we let people fly higher. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I always thought that was kind of heartbreaking, too, kind of going back to that tension between, like, a world whose rules are understandable that you kind of rage against to make it what you want of it. 
versus everything's under your control. I, I just, and, and you're right, like that initial one big world where you had to walk everywhere or you could go to the telehubs, that was still, that's still what I kind of like. I still like the idea of a virtual world that would be quieter because you just have to walk everywhere. Or, you know, if there's a party all the way across town and you're not, you can't get there in time, you can't go to that party. I think in this day and age with the overwhelmed nature that we are in right now, too much information, it feels like, sounds good to me. Well, some people will like that restriction and some people won't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most people won't. And so the pressure is to relieve those, to remove those restrictions. Do you feel like, what do you remember being other examples of cases where we as the builders would really make big changes because of what people were telling us or what people were happy or sad about? Um, well, uh, we haven't talked about the taxes. That, that was a mechanism we were using to sure. yeah, that's great. Uh, encourage people to build down to the ground and also not build too much. So the way the system worked, as I recall, is uh, if you it cost ten Linden dollars to make a prim, you would get ten Linden dollars if you deleted one. Uh, and then if you had prims out, there was a periodic tally would be made of where your prims were, how big they were, and yep. how, how high, high they up were. they were. And you would you would have to spend money to keep those in place. And if they were a light. Or right. physical, if, I think. Yeah. It was like if they were phys if they were expensive computationally, mm -hmm. like if it was a light or like if it had physics or whatever, those things cost you more. Right. So it was a an incentive to. Yeah. But it wasn't. You know what the tally was in the end. You wouldn't. You couldn't tell. You you would just get a number back. You couldn't actually look at something and exactly, kind of compute right. how expensive it would be. Uh, but this was a mechanism we were using to just try to guide people towards a more reasonable building and use of resources in the world. And that was a great example of one that totally did not work out yeah. as planned. Yeah. We had a tax revolt. We had a tea party. Right. We had uh Well, we I mean we basically just confused the crap out of people because you would you would basically get this tax bill at the end of the week or right or something or day or yeah. week or whatever. And you would get charged without without representation if you will. You would get charged linen dollars for yeah your built stuff, and I remember also maybe that I think you could also get charged for stuff that like you'd lost. Yes, I think there was in the beginning you couldn't find th like if you built something way off in some distant place, there was more public space and you could build something and you'd be getting charged for it. And you wouldn't be able to find it. <laughs> That's right. We just gave you the, the, the cost. We didn't give you an <laughs> itemized cost with locations. You could hunt it down. That's so good. There's so many things in Second Life, you know, that were just by virtue of the implementation or the complexity of them, they didn't turn out to be good ideas. And I think that was one of them where it still feels, again, like that idea of taxes was, in my mind, consistent with laws of physics, right? Like, there are costs to these things. And so, I mean, nowadays we've got people with avatars that are incredibly complex, right? And so they put all this load on the servers and on people nearby when they show up. And it still feels to me like that 
is not in a balance that makes sense, you know, if that was part of an ecosystem of charges or, or whatever, that it would work better. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but people want to express themselves. So, yeah. and, and, you know, with the tax system, new people would come in and every new person would have to have the system explained to them. They'd have to figure it out. It wasn't intuitive and it wasn't expected. Yeah. Um, and so someone coming in today who just wants to, you know, have the, you know, the 300 prim rhinestone necklace or diamond necklace that they wear. And whenever they cross region boundaries, those 300 items have to be <laughs> have to go across. streamed. You know, they have to be serialized and then deserialized yeah. on the receiving end. Uh, it's not obvious to the user that that's uh, a huge cost, but it is. Yeah, people don't understand the technical complexity of some of the things that are still in that that that's still in Second Life are completely unique. Like that idea of being able to roll a ball. I mean, I remember what I was so excited by was that you could roll a ball across the ground and then it would cross over from one server to another and on a good day it would just keep running. Yeah. And just and you know, and it, it it could have state and it could remember things and et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's still a pretty unique um thing. What do you remember the gray goo thing? Like the Yeah, yeah I remember that. What do you remember about that story? That was great. Uh, we added well, a feature, right, to let where you could oh. reproduce. You could make an object, and then you could put your code, you could copy your DNA, if you will, right. into that child that you had made. And, of course, that opened up the possibility of a, a viral attacks. Yeah, right. So you could, um, we added the ability where you could give an object a script, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could write a script that would create an object and give a copy of the object to itself. You can give a, a script, well, you can give a, a, an inventory item to an object, I mm-hmm. think. And so you could give the object a copy of itself and a script that would let it make more that copies. Copy. Yeah, and so that thing could then create another copy. And we knew when we made it, we knew that this was possible. Kind of like the current uh, worries about AI, right? We knew it was only a matter of time <laughs> until uh, people began to use this feature uh, destructively. Yeah, lose control. And then do you remember the first <coughs> time that happened? Or I, I have this I one. don't remember the first time. We had that thing called the Big Board from Snow Crash, right? Which was like a web page that would show all the servers. Yeah, dates. a map. Yeah, and I like when, when Second Life was comprised of only a few hundred, now it's like... 15, 20,000 or whatever. But back then it was like you could kind of see it on one web page, all the little squares that were the little tiles of the servers. Mm-hmm. And what I remember was I was sitting there, a bunch of us were sitting there in the evening at Brandon Street, I think, our other office. And what happened was the, somebody said, hey, there's something going on in the world. And I, I, I was sitting at my desk and I had the big board and I looked at it and you could see the, this little cluster of servers turning red. And then the cluster started to expand. Yeah. And I realized somebody must have made an object that's reproducing itself. And it's going to shut the servers down and it's going to shut all the servers down. The whole down. world. Yeah. And then what was really fun about that was I'm not, as you know, from days of playing Counter-Strike together, I'm not a very fast, you know, video gamer kind of clicker. 
on things. But we had this feature on the big board where you could right click on a server and shut it down. And I started trying to make this firewall, fire brigade or whatever you call that, right? Yeah. Where I was shutting down the servers and trying to make a, a barrier because we had an area that was like Australia or something like it was connected in a in a fragmented way to most of the mainland of the world. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to start shutting the servers down and kind of cut off the peninsula so that it wouldn't expand beyond this point and get into the rest of the world. Yeah. And I succeeded in doing that, you know, like before the the replicating object made it across the boundary. And that was I thought that was pretty sci fi. I was like, I still think that was like a pretty living in a real sci-fi movie yeah. moment. I wasn't there for that, but I, after that, we had to write some tools yeah. to prevent the gray goo from taking over the world. So I was involved in that. That's right, like the gray goo mitigation. Yeah. That's right, you were yeah. like leading that. Yeah, that was. Yeah, there were several rounds or sort of sequences of work on that, but uh, I wrote most of that code. And it's like Google or something because you still can't tell anybody how it works because then if you if you told anybody how the the mitigation code worked, well then people could game it, right? I I think the the residents have explored the limits <laughs> of the Grey Goo <laughs> containment system. They what probably have ideas on how it works. What do you remember <laughs> what else do, or what, what things do you remember people building? early on or whatever that you were really like, okay, that's, that's just next level. Uh, well, one of the things I, I, what I remember in general is every day or every week we were encountering really fantastic content, you know, and there were moments where someone would be like, Hey, come over here, look yeah. over my shoulder at what I found in the yeah. world. So that was just, Fun. All the time, people were just flabbergasted as to what the residents were building. And we were, you know, it was always a, a very joyous experience. Even some of the terrible stuff, you know, was just a, amazing. Like like the gray goo, you know, the, some of these gray goo attacks were impressive. <laughs> I remember there was an island that I liked that was called Zvarga or something. And it was very pretty, but it had like, organisms that were supposed to be like interacting with each other and breeding or growing or something. And I, I remember that being like a, a high point for me because I felt like somebody had finally rebuilt that like Garden of Eden thing that I wanted, but on top of Second Life. Mm -hmm. um, I remember that being exciting. Yeah, yeah, the beautiful builds. There was the, the white ivory tower. Remember that, the prim? Well, that's like still there. Oh, That's yeah. where I take people uh -huh. when I... When I lead tours or, well, actually, a lot of times if I just go into Second Life, I'll go back to those old servers where I know which ones, the old alley named servers yeah. that were where it all began, which, of course, are still there, but nobody knows. I mean, some people know that, but it's fun to go in the world and take people back to there. Right. Do you remember the old, like, sort of Burning Man guy? Kind of, there was like a statue of a big tall person kind of thing yeah you know rio de janeiro kind of jesus sort of statue mm -hmm. that i think uh, ryan had made and that is still there um so i sometimes go back and visit that statue so yeah that's pretty cool that it goes all the way back um i I'm, i don't remember particular events that really stand out um but I remember it being very fun. Uh, 
we had the burning life mm -hmm. events where people would really pour in their creativity and hours to make really neat stuff. Um, you know, dynamic art, interactive things that you could walk through. Those were always really great. Um, it was always very recursive or self-referential, I thought, to do like a, a Burning Man thing inside Second Life because it was kind of like Second Life was kind of like Burning Man anyway. And now, then you had yeah. a sub area in it. And then there were the fantastic avatars. Like we had that, we had a alpha bug for a while, a transparency mm -hmm. layered bug. And so if you put a transparent object in, uh, in front of, I don't remember exactly how it worked, but um, you could basically make it so that you could see through In, into your body, right? Yeah, yeah. You could you could see through things. Yeah. And so someone had made that. a an avatar that was a they had like an X ray screen in front of them. Yeah. And you could see through the body, but then they had put in the bones. Yeah, the bones. Uh, I remember so that. Could, so, and it was a great effect. Also, there was a an avatar that was um, essentially a an abstract painting, and they used this transparency trick to, you know, it looked like a swirl of paint or something. Wasn't that also like the ones that were toon rendered, cartoon rendering? Yeah. Where they would use that same thing where it was inside out, like that you'd make it a little bit bigger, and then you color That's the right. inside of it black or whatever, and it would give you that you'd see it only at the grazing angle. Yeah. Yeah. There were all those features like that, by the way, I think are really another really interesting thing about virtual world design, which was that sometimes you make a mistake or something and then it gets used as a feature. And then because it's economically important to people and, and nostalgic or whatever, you can never change it again. And I think sometimes that's a thing that Second Life explored so much that um, other worlds and other designers haven't even yet encountered that problem that if you build something that's really successful and large people t take advantage of every property of it even if it's a property that you someday intended to change like backwards triangles being invisible or whatever right yeah miss features we call them you know along those lines of like strange strange things um people always ask me about like what surprised you and I would always say, well, of course, I don't know, everything surprised me that the whole thing was designed to be pretty surprising in terms of we were building something where people could build almost anything. But conspiracy theories in virtual worlds, I thought it was really interesting how at some point when we got to maybe a million people or I don't, you know, I don't know what scale, but I would start to get emails from people and they'd say, I know that you uh, made the, this new ch change in some update, and it's because you're out to get me. Hmm. And I would reply initially to people and say, oh my gosh, wait a second, hold on. That was just because we made a mistake or we were dumb about something or we did the best we could, you know, or, wh or whatever, right? But people would say, no, no, no. You had this nefarious reason. Uh. I wasn't getting those emails. <laughs> well, do you remember the, the FIC? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I remember the uh, fetid inner core. Inner core. Yes. <laughs> so this, dear readers, it was a case where uh, there was a group of people in Second Life who thought it was funny 
to revel in the idea that there was like a secret Illuminati uh, of people that like had special access to the company or whatever. Right. And they turned that into this joke. And I, I remember one time thinking that that was so funny. Of course, it was probably not a good idea. But I remember thinking that was so funny that I had like a T-shirt or something that had like the logo of the FIC on it. And I wore it in like a frontline interview or something like that because I thought it was so funny because <laughs> that people would see it and then they'd yeah. be like, oh, no, it really the truth is out there. You know, uh -huh. there really are Illuminati. Um, but I think the general human tendency to attribute uh, something that you encounter to a purpose or a person in the sky or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's the thing I was struck by as being really unusual. That people would believe that, that there were intentional things going on behind the scenes that there really weren't. And so I guess in a way, as we got to this modern era where there's so much stuff that's like conspiracy theories, right? It, I guess it surprises me less now because I feel like, well, I got to be kind of at the head of that or, or experiencing that in an unusual way there for a while. Yeah, I don't, I don't fully understand how, you know, why these people need to spin these narratives, but it must satisfy some deep need and we saw it early. Um, I think the fetid inner core was, was also a complaint by some people who felt that there was uneven uh, support going out. Like some people were favorites. Some of the residents were favorites. Right, right. So it was a perceived uh, unevenness of application of, of policy and philosophically that seems almost impossible to avoid right i mean you made friends in the world so one did we all did yeah and so of course it'd be a basic human instinct right to be helpful yeah right. and you know there was sort of a, a popularity you know some people were just more they had more friends they were more vocal and and uh, sort of successful in the world, the social games, uh, and they were succeeding, and <laughs> and also becoming friends with some Lindens, and so there was perceived uh, inner inner group. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if anything, what speculation we can make about like what there is to learn from as unusual a place as Second Life about like social networks or, so, or social media as we now call it, you know? Like, what do we learn there? Yeah, I don't know. We're doomed to learn the same lessons <laughs> in new ways. Well, one thing about Second Life that I'd be curious as to what your thoughts are, um, as we all know and as people have written papers about now, um, to a large extent, people in Second Life tend to get along better than they do on social media. That is, you know, they don't, they don't seem to become, for example, polarized uh, toward each other. And I've often wondered, um, well, I have my own thoughts, but I'm curious as to what your thoughts are about why, you know, why that was, right? I mean, people definitely largely get along in Second Life, where it seems in social media that people are almost pre-tuned to diverge and, you know, get to dislike each other and 
be mean to each other. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, there was there was uh, a fair amount of griefing in Second Life early on. So it right. still is today. Uh, but um, so I don't know how friendly it is or generally friendly in Second Life. It seems very inclusive. Um, what I think happens in Second Life is the people that, you know, come into grief but don't enjoy it, don't stick around. Mm-hmm. There's some people who come into grief and griefing is their sort of metagame, the reason why they come to Second Life, but they actually enjoy it and eventually they become sort of pillars of some part of the community where they, <laughs> they actually, you know, they enjoy Second Life enough to sort of uh, defend it or, you know, support it. Right. They find but, their own. Yeah, but their game, the, their metagame, the reason they're coming, the, 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 since there is no game, there's no score in Second Life, there's no way to win, you have to invent your own uh, metagames. And some people choose griefing. And some of those griefers, you know, essentially become uh, serious users of Second Life. And yeah. they, they like the platform. Um, and they feel a connection to their neighbors or to their friends or whatever. So they, yeah. so they then become defenders, at least in some local way, of what the world is. Yeah. And however, I've encountered even nicer communities online. Uh, for example, the uh, fan fiction communities uh-huh. are very, for the most part, um, very supportive. There's very little flame wars or griefing going on. Uh, acrimonious arguments for the um, the fan fiction groups. So they're this is where you write some short story based right. on some pre-established uh, copyrighted work. And then other people are commenting on yeah. it. You know, one thing that's different, b- that's similar between fan fiction and Second Life and then different between those two and something like uh, Twitter, for example, is that there is a primary focus on making stuff. There's a primary focus on creative contribution just yeah. by the very nature. I mean, in Second Life, as you know, it was because it's literally empty unless you make stuff. So you're going to make stuff, and then people are going to comment on what you make. And I feel like that that idea of co-creation, like co because there are nominally other people there, that idea of like co-creation of stuff is key to the... Uh, Thing that's kind of different from like a more of a broadcast medium where you're mostly consuming other people's stuff and then if you are commenting on it you're like critiquing it but you're not making your in many cases you're not making your own stuff mm-hmm. it feels like that at least that takes you down a different path uh, I, I yeah. always think it's like leaning forward you know like leaning forward is engaging and making and doing and and then leaning backward is like relaxing escaping or whatever you can be one or the other yeah and there's not really i don't know the twitter there's um it's so public and if you have an agenda you can have your little twitter wars um it seems like there's sort of less reason to have wars in Second Life because it's it's less 
it's less uh, public, it seems. You know. Also, like everything on Twitter is public by default to the whole world. So when you say something mm -hmm. on Twitter, for better or for worse, you sort of have a sense, incorrect sense, I would say, that it's being read by everyone. That, you know, you know, Joe Biden and Elon Musk are reading the thing you wrote on Twitter. And I think in Second Life, what was different, right, was that your voice doesn't carry very far. So you can be quite sure in Second Life, right, that no more than 100 people can hear you yeah. ever. Yeah. Even though there's 50,000 people online, there's only 100 that could possibly hear you. Right. Yeah. And all those people have taken the deep dive, I mean, to make an account and know how to travel the world to experience the message you're giving in Second Life. Yeah. And there's that. So there's not that many people that can hear you. And then on top of that, there's that symmetry where, like you're saying, they, they all had to build an avatar. They're all creative to some extent, right? Because they had to make choices about where to live and what to build and, you know, what they wanted to do, what avatar they wanted to make. So that there's so much creativity that is symmetric going on. So, so, so like, it's like glass houses, right? You don't want to beat up on other people because you're making a lot of stuff too and they're going to beat up on your stuff. Right, yeah. The, um, I mean, given that, what do you think... What have you not seen in virtual worlds? What would you like to see in virtual worlds that, you know, we never got around to building or that, you know, you'd like to see happen in the future? Well, I'm, I'm still interested in working on virtual worlds, but um, the first thing that comes to mind is for Second Life, uh -huh. the main item I've had on my list is um, collisions across region boundaries. Uh -huh. And really this relates to um, working distributed physics systems. Right, right. S um, tell, tell us more about that, yeah. The, uh, we never actually got the boundary conditions of the physics simulation working in Second Life. Um, so you can plop down an object at the border between two regions each region is running its own simula physics simulation, and uh, you can see into the other one as a uh, as a viewer in the world. But you can walk up to the edge and actually pass through objects that are right are, there. They're right there, but their their center is their position is in the other region, and so you don't interact with them. Yeah, you pass right through them, and that is a big. <laughs> problem and back when we back when we implemented the, the physics system you know we thought we would just come in shortly and fix that and we never actually fixed it and that has been on my list of things to fix I uh, remember a diagram with like particles or things at the edges of simulators and like how one would be like a ghost or you'd be yeah. sending this information back and forth. Yeah, I can remember like whiteboard diagrams or pictures of whiteboards or something that go all the way back to then that yeah. we were working so on. So it was in the plan and then, you know, the world got ahead of us and we never went back and fixed that. Does it interest you because you think you'd like to see things that are physical that are like really huge or whatever, like 
Like when you think about why you'd like to sort of solve that physics problem, how come? Well, it's a, it's just a bug in the system, and it's affecting people all the time. And anyone building a bridge, you know, or building highways or train tracks or whatever in Second Life have to, have to worry about this. It's yeah. a, essentially, it's a, it's a leaky paradigm. If you've heard of the leaky paradigm, I haven't. Um, you know, in Second Life, there's physics. Things bump into each other, so that's it's a that system but there's there's a problem underneath on how it actually works and when that fails the the paradigm of that you have in your head of like this is a physical world fails because of the details underneath so that the just the fact that you got to transport this information across between multiple processes um, that bug reveals this structure that is happening underneath yeah. the, the whole simulation. And um, so just the fact that this bug surfaces, you know, it needs to be fixed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it's, um, it's an item that I've always wanted to fix. I haven't got around to it. And hopefully and eventually it's been 20 years. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's only been 20 years. This June is going to be our 20th anniversary, well, of the release of Second Life, but not even of Linden World before that. And we did different things at High Fidelity for, we had a distributed physics system. Right. And it also had its glitches, and some of those glitches related to the limits of the individual physics mm -hmm. simulations. And we never actually yeah. got the boundary conditions working right. It's a complex problem, but it's something that... You know, if I wasn't doing anything else, I would try to fix it. If I wasn't, uh, I if I didn't have a dozen other things to work on. I think the broad, I agree with you, I think the broad idea, maybe it's because we both study together and we love physics, but I think the broad idea of building a physics simulation that can span many, many CPUs and is consistent, you know, uh, you know that, that you can do experiments and experiments have the outcomes you expect I guess it matches your prediction mm -hmm. um, and you can have complex behaviors that that does sort of feel like a holy grail kind of a thing you know just to see I've often been tempted to ask like how simple a world could you build that had those conditions and was interesting you know like and you know we worked on this summit high fidelity like could you build a two-dimensional world right that only had you know collisions or something you know a two-dimensional world full of marbles that could collide with each other and had different colors and you could just move the marbles around and leave them places as a way of signaling people or, and there was no avatars or whatever. I love that kind of uh, question and I think that the idea of a, yeah, a distributed physics simulation that worked is still very exciting to think about. I guess the question yeah. is, will we get to see it while we're alive or while we're still <laughs> uh, functional as designers and builders? I do not know. <clears throat> um, Did you ever think it would take so long to do some of these things? I mean, we started on this by comparison when we were kind of pretty much almost kids. Early on, I didn't think so. I, I uh, yeah, I, I was optimistic. It seemed like the work could be done. Um, 
It always takes longer than you expect. It's like that guy in, who was it, like Rutherford or whatever, that they discovered the electron, and he said, physics as we know it will be over in six months. Yeah. <laughs> and that was quantum, right? Or that was the, maybe it wasn't quite quantum, but it was like the... Details of the, the atom. That the, you know, they knew there was something orbiting the middle part, you know, and they were like, physics will be over. It's just a matter of writing all this down. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mechanical. Yeah. Back, back when they thought... You know, the world might be completely predictable. Yeah. Do you think you virtual worlds, like, tell us anything about the real world? I guess back to, like, yeah, like, do, do, do we learn anything about the nature of reality from re-simulating it? Um, that's a tough question. I, I don't, I mean, I think my answer is no. Um when you really get down into the nitty gritty of it, um, all the physics simulations that we do for games and virtual worlds are approximations. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, maybe ultimately the, the real world is an approximation of something, but it's, it's a pretty tight approximation. So uh, you have to cut corners in order to do real time game physics. So you mean it makes you think like that, if I'm getting this right, you're, you're saying that, um there's always a degree of approximation or error or in, say, a virtual world, and that it also seems true that that's the case for the real world, albeit the tolerances are tighter. I believe that's true. I mean, do you think we're ever going to get all the answers to physics? Like, we have things we still don't understand, right, about physics. Yeah. And, of course, every year somebody says... Physics as we know it will be over in six months or whatever. Do you think we're ever going to get, are we going to get a complete theory of everything? Yeah. Um, uh, that's, a, I, I don't know. You, you, it's possible that, you know, maybe if they could just make a smart enough AI, could, it could figure it out. It could tell us. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we'll cheat that way and learn the, the fundamental rules that are at the very bottom. Uh, and then you got guys like Wolfram who, who claim that they already know what those rules are. Right, right. Um, and although although Wolfram, uh, Stephen Wolfram in his latest work uh, has, has kind of explored the way that computation and uncertainty and the phenomena of the observer may be sort of the same thing and that, that, that there is a kind of a, as you said, there is a kind of an uncertainty to the specific experience that any one, you know, person can be having that it, that is deep in the same way that I guess, I guess we would think of quantum as being sort of deep, but also very poorly understood, right? And mm -hmm. I think what Wolfram is trying to do is say, well, here's a theory of everything based on hypergraphs that even more explicitly explains why there is a kind of a limit to what you can understand and you know there's there's entropy for example because you have only limited computation and so you end up having to mm -hmm. approximate things and that looks like heat uh, as opposed to knowing where all the particles are individually so he seems to feel like maybe we're moving almost toward knowing less in a sense you know or or, or getting to a final answer where there's a degree of uncertainty that is I guess, as Einstein objected to, just uncomfortable that we're never going to get past. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a very likely scenario, I think. Um, but um, for game physics and, and real-time physics, uh, you just you have to you have to like be very conscious about the approximations you're making uh, to really understand it. I think. Going back to something you just said, do you think that if the AIs give us a model of the universe that works better or works perfectly or whatever, will we find that unsatisfying? I, I think it would be kind of, a, I, I don't know. Probably because we wouldn't <laughs> be able to understand it, right? <laughs> Even if we understood it, though, it sort of seems like having somebody else turn the cards over and tell ah. us what's behind the door or whatever is kind of inherently unsatisfying. I don't know. No, I don't think so, because... Uh, very few people are, are at the forefront of understanding how fundamental particles or nature works. And essentially most of us are in that boat where someone else is turning over the cards. So whether it's some absolute whiz physicist that figures it out or some AI, it's the same to me. Someone's flipping the card for me. It does seem, right, like when we studied physics, we all already talked about the fact that Right, like if you if you did undergraduate physics like you and I did, what well, you went on, like I did, we we learned physics up to what, like 1930 or whatever, and then if you studied, if you got your master's in physics, you got up to like 1960. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then every incremental year <laughs> beyond uh -huh. that became harder and harder. Yeah, that became really clear to me in undergraduate upper level thermodynamics. Oh, yeah? Uh, where they start talking about um, the, uh, the relationship between entropy and number of states available and basically connecting quantum with thermo. Mm -hmm. And I realized, wow, someone years ago who was an absolute genius spent his life figuring this out, this stuff that I'm learning, because this is really amazing and complex someone figured it out and they spent their lifetime doing it and the person who did that was smarter than me <laughs> <laughs> i didn't want to accept that as uh, a young person and i accept it now yeah. <laughs> it does feel though you're right like um i've often been struck by how uh great scientific minds um and and i think uh stephen wolfram is one example will sometimes have insights about things that they're, they must know that they're never going to be able to really write this all down. That, that they're, or if they can, that nobody's going to understand anyway. And I wonder, as somebody who works on really complicated things, you know, yeah, you must have this almost sad thought or whatever that nobody's ever going to understand your work. And maybe for all of us that's true like at some level, but for some people like you know, quantum physics, physicists, it's, it's truer than for most. Yeah. What, what do you think AI, what effect do you think AI might have on virtual worlds given what we've seen circa, what is it, you know, end of May 2023? Well, um, the ability of AI to dream up content really fast, really yeah. amazing content is definitely going to be used. Um, but also maybe I could imagine... Um, eventually we could have AI actually do the physics, mm. right? Like the S physics engine, it. yeah, mm -hmm. the physics engine would be a, an AI prediction 
system. Right. So instead of simulating the physics with collisions and whatnot like we do today, you could just tell an AI to say, tell me what you think happens next. Yes, exactly. And you don't have to worry about the, the, not the math, but you don't have to worry about the collisions. Yeah. So here's the input. What's the output? So physics, so AI, AI replacing a physics engine and maybe helping us get to that distributed system kind of stuff too. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've been messing around with in Second Life right now is, is trying to do inverse kinematics. It's one of my side projects. And, um, so tell everybody what that is. That's inverse like the kinematics joints. is where you, um, you know where you want the, um, the hand to be, but you don't know the rest, the, right? You don't know the angles of the bones that get you there. Um, so you, you're like your hand is trying to reach out and grab a point. Um, calculating the angles of all the bones, all the other, all, all the, the other, other bones joints. intermediary, uh -huh. um, is a problem of inverse kinematics, uh, rather than. So you've been working on that. Yeah, and so. It's definitely, you know, it's it's a tough problem. There's always little glitches to work through. It's a lot harder than you think it's going to be, but um, it's solvable. You know, just by writing the logic through and doing the math, but. As I've been working on this, I've been thinking, well, if I could just get an AI, if I could just train a, an AI to calculate the inverse kinematics for me, then I, I wouldn't even need to know how it works, just as long as the AI always gives me the right answer. Uh, so maybe AI could, will yeah. be used to you know, do inverse kinematics for all of your uh, local avatar animation. I saw an Unreal demo, maybe I'll look it up and put it in here or whatever, but I saw an Unreal demo that was uh, doing the muscles using mm -hmm. an AI. And that was pretty impressive, where it was moving the muscles so that, so they'd have a skin and then the, they'd be simulating the muscles underneath it. And you could, you know, make the avatar go like that or whatever. And it would stretch all the right muscles that would be necessary to move the arms or the body that way. I thought that was pretty cool and it was being done with AI and as like we were talking about earlier we both know that wouldn't be feasible you know really in any way other than doing something like that right what about <laughs> I, I think using AI to like make 3d scenes well on the one hand you don't get the craftsmanship or whatever <laughs> the pleasure if you will the suffering of building these things with these little primitives but um, I do think that idea of like typing text like you do with mid-journey or something but having the output be a three-dimensional space, I mean, come on, that's gonna be bonkers when that starts happening. Because yeah. we both know, because we've worked on it so much that it's extremely difficult to build content. Like it, building things in 3D like is, can only be made easier with software up to a point, right? It's incredibly hard to do well. Yeah, yeah, it, but it just occurred to me that maybe if you had a predictable AI, you could use um, the AI as a form of content compression, right? If the if two ends of a two people participating in a virtual world, um, well, if the if the viewer has an AI that can interpret the the prompt and produce all the output, if you want to convey what a scene looks like, uh, you can imagine. If the the server, sorry, mm -hmm. someone exp 
gives a prompt to the AI to produce oh, content. They saying. try different prompts until they find what they want. Yeah. Um, and then they they can communicate that whole scene with the a properly formatted prompt that can just oh, be sent so you're, to the other uh, that's side. Cool. That, um, that's cool. So you're saying there's this kind of data compression where you say, we're in a woods with a cabin and smoke and a stream and fish and birds. Yeah. And you can say all that as what? Like uh, what I just said was like 300 bytes of text, right? And then it makes that whole scene. And so if you had a deterministic AI that was doing yes. that expansion, it would be like compression. Mm -hmm. But you could cool. even imagine, um, uh, you know, creating a space completely, um, completely original. Mm -hmm. And then it might be possible to ask an AI, uh, given, given the known receiving AI and its state, um, what is the prompt? What's the smallest prompt that would that Get takes this, this like study this scene, yeah, and reproduce that scene with a compact prompt? I think that's one of those non-reversible problems, though. Maybe, but yeah, like the com complexity of that might be. Yeah, well, you wouldn't get it exactly, but you could imagine you get it. You could get it pretty close. That is a wild right? thought, because you could say like this house is styled like. Yeah, so it's like this it, prompt it's house. plus these twiddles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe the description is is many sentences long, but still a lot smaller than all of the data that would be in all the textures yeah. and the, the finer mm. details of the scene. That's great. Like I love like using this as a design session. Like that is an interesting invention, right? Like that idea of using it as a compressor. I mean, I'm always troubled by that we will build worlds that we don't live in with each other. Like mm. You know, I'm a broken record on this, but I think that if we share places together that we've built, but that we're both seeing the same thing, it makes us get along and like each other better. It's one of the things that I think has made Second Life peaceful in some ways, too, is that you're in a shared space. And so you feel a bond with somebody because you're in that space, like the bond with the last names. Mm -hmm. And I worry that AI will enable in a couple of different ways. It'll, it'll make it easier for people to kind of live in their own world, but not each other's worlds, you know, like one at one is that, you know, it could become so easy to create content that you're just like, I don't know, always creating so much content that was just uniquely yours, but nobody else has seen your content or whatever, because there's just so much. Another problem is like um, talking to AIs instead of talking to people. Like it feels to me like if you're talking to AIs that are pretending to be your friends, we're going in a very, very dangerous direction there. Not because the AIs are necessarily going to do us any harm, but because you're communicating less with real people, which means you're going to maybe like those real people less or not understand them or have conflict with them. And so it feels like we need to, uh, I think, really consider that as we think about how AI impacts things like virtual worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. I haven't thought it all the way through, but uh, I could see that. So kind of as a last thing or, or sort of maybe wrapping up here a little bit since we're running out of light in San Francisco here. Um, you've always been a, a very kind of kind, helpful person you know, as a character at Linden Lab. I mean, I can say this others. Well, many people watching this probably do know this too, but what advice would you give to like people that are getting into engineering or software or whatever in terms of you know, how to get along with each other since you've done such a good job of that in your career? 
Uh, well, thanks for the compliment. Um, I, I don't know if I have any good advice on that, actually. Um, when I think about my own methodologies uh, or, or attitudes, processes, um, what I always come to, actually, is, is uh, one of the things that you told me about, which was the five love languages, mm, mm-hmm. right? So there's, sure. the, there's a self-help book for relationships, and I guess it's been spun off to many books about all sorts of relationships. I think but it's the, pretty old. Yeah. The first one was about marriages, how to make your marriage work. And um, well, that's the one I think. That's yeah. the only one I know. know oh, of, the, well, yeah. they have ones about um, you know how to use the love languages, say between parents and children, or something like that. Right. Uh, but anyways, uh, the short story is, theory is there are five primary love languages. Everyone likes to uh, give and receive messages in these languages, but everyone has a primary one right. that's most important. And so if you want to save your relationship, you figure out what the love language of your partner is and start to speak and, Del- and also deliver. accept yeah. messages in that love language. Um, everyone should read the book. Uh, the book's longer than it has to be. Like it could be a And what are those there? It's like touch, template. quality time, acts of service, gifts. Yes. And words of affirmation. Words of affirmation, right. That was uh, so uh, you turned me on to the idea that my primary love language is acts of service. Mm. Um, yep, I remember that. And so I read the book. It was, it was a good book. But one of the things I came away from the book with was, um, yes, my love language is acts of service, but um, it also allowed me to... Uh, justify some of, like, justify my tendency to give acts of service. If, if mm-hmm. th- that is, not only could I understand why I would tend to, to like, um, help people with projects, yep. um, help people out if anyone had an emergency, help them out, but also it's it becomes justification for doing that. I yeah. can say, oh, my primary love language is acts of service, therefore I should be helping this person out. Yeah. Um, and so that has been um, one of the practices that I've picked up since That's then. That's great. That's great. Um, but uh, advice for, so, so like when I think about, like my first thought on advice for people would be like, <laughs> you just want to help people out. You know, if you're, if you are uh, help, help helpful, out, you yeah, mean, like yeah. if you're helpful, in your environment, then everyone's going to want to have you around. Yeah. Uh, but I know that I, that kind of advice, I would give that advice because I value helping people, uh, and it might not be everyone else's primary love language. Right. So people, I'm not yeah. sure that advice would apply to everyone. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, that's a, the advice I would give. Uh, that's the immediate thought of, of advice that I would give for people if they want to succeed in the world in general. Is yeah, un- understand what people, other people need, and then in, in the case where, for example, providing them with help, acts of service, uh, do it right. Like, uh, do it and recognize that it's a key component to getting along. I think one of the things that helped us all in our work was that Second Life was such a uh, 
uh, a complicated undertaking and one that was multi, what, what do you say nowadays, uh, cross-disciplinary? Yeah, cross-disciplinary. So we needed computer graphics, physics, and uh, scripting, and all these different things, you know, avatars, all these different things that we had different people with different backgrounds. And so one of the things that I think naturally fell out of that, and like people like you were really like uh, beacons for that behavior, was that you had to help a lot of other people out more maybe than you might normally in a company. You know, I think about Silicon Valley companies as sometimes being like built around one key innovation or one key person's uh, remarkable capabilities. And then you build, you know, the layers of an onion company around that person or whatever. But this was something different where none of us had all the answers. Um, we were more generalists than most. And so we had that opportunity to be good to each other. Yeah, um, one of the things about Linden Lab was um, for much of its early period, Linden Lab was a fantastic place to work. Like for most of the people, everyone was enjoying themselves, um, and it was very rewarding. Um, even later, when Linden Lab became better, it was still a good place to work. Um, became bigger you mean yeah when it became yeah. bigger and more people it, it was still a good place to work maybe it wasn't quite as um, you know just tight-knit and and rewarding as as the early days yeah um, but um, there's when the the early like the the rise of Linden Lab, um, there were a lot of really great people, and they still have close ties, and totally. still remember those days, um, and and that's what that 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 community the 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 uh, internal community of the company bled over to the product, I believe. Right. So t that's a good point. Maybe that was something about the the experience of the world too. Yeah, yeah, was that it carried over. I mean, I, th I think that, like you say, um, having a bunch of people that want to help each other, like what you said earlier, right, engaged in, a, in an interesting and considerable undertaking is, is a pretty good starting point. Like, it seems kind of hard to screw that up. Like, if you're, <laughs> if you're looking for hope, which we all need these days, uh, coming up with something to work on that is complicated and interesting and difficult and has to be tackled by a whole bunch of different people who have, you know, different mindsets and skills. Like that's a pretty good recipe, right, for a company. For you know, starts you from a good place. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been great. It's been my pleasure. It's good to talk to you this way. Yeah. Thanks.